fundraiser. We're going to continue in our series, which we've been calling The Longest Week. And the reason that we've been calling it The Longest Week is because, well, in all the Gospels, which are the stories of Jesus' life, more than half of it is devoted to the last week of Jesus' life. So you have the birth, you have a little bit about him growing up, and then his ministry, and then, boom, we just, it, the time just sort of stops and goes in slow motion as we really focus on the last week of Jesus' life. And we want to take this season leading up to Easter, which is traditionally called Lent, to just focus on everything that Jesus went through. And we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, and today we are in the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to know that we have those Bibles back there. You can follow along with me on the screen behind, but if you need a Bible, you should take one. We'll let you rob from us. <laughs> it's okay. And the reason that we'll let you rob us is because sometimes, like, all we ever had was, like, a Bible that read, like, thee and thou, and it seemed, like, completely inaccessible to us, and we just sort of gave up. And we, we want you to read the Bible. Believe it's God's word. Believe it'll change your life. Believe it, 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 it will refresh you and renew you and restore you. So... Please, please have one of those Bibles. You can keep it uh, for right now. You can just follow along as I read verses 1 to 11. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. And while he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For the perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, let her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You have you always have the poor with you. And you can do what is good for them whenever you want, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, what, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her which is why we're reading this here in a language that didn't, wasn't invented yet on the other side of the world, right? We're reading about this woman, what she did. 
Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And when they had heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. It's Wednesday, in the longest week, the longest week of the Lord's life, the longest week in history. And what we see here is the love shown to Jesus in Bethany. And this is a theme that you probably caught up on. If you were here for the first couple weeks we started this series, you'll notice that Jesus gets a lot of love in Bethany and gets a lot of hate in Jerusalem. Bethany is this little village just a couple miles over the hills. So you can be in Bethany and not realize that you're basically, you're, you're, you're a short walk to the city, but you can't see the city, so it just feels like you're in this little village. And there's this safe spot, this home base for Jesus. He said, the Son of Man has no home. But if he did have a home, if he had a place where he felt the most safe, if he had a place where he had the most friends, this was definitely it. He was loved in Bethany. And uh, I want to ask you, like, do we give Jesus the Bethany welcome or the Jerusalem welcome? I think you remember the you know, even if you weren't here for it, I think you remember when, in chapter 11, when Jesus kind of comes in from Bethany the first time on Sunday, what happens is people give Jesus a fake welcome in Jerusalem. They cut down the palm trees. They lay down their coats. They shout, God save us. They go crazy. They think, all right, here comes our king. And yet they really don't submit to him. They really don't. You might have remembered that I said that Jesus is a king, but we want him as a celebrity. Like, we're cool with having the Jesus poster in our room. But Jesus doesn't care about you having the Jesus poster in your room. <laughs> He's not looking for fans. He's looking for subjects. He's not looking for people who are just kind of interested in him and want to attach themselves to him. He's looking for people who will follow him and obey him and do what he says. You know, are we giving Jesus the Bethany welcome or the Jerusalem welcome? Are we like the religious leaders? Or are we like the social outcasts? See, there's a cost, and it's not small, to following Jesus. And the people in this little town right over the hills, they were revolutionary. These people were outcasts. These people were identified with Jesus. And it brought them problems. But what do we see in this text? We see that the religious leaders are already plotting to kill Jesus, to arrest him, and to kill him. 
And I want to argue with you tonight. I want to suggest to you tonight that actually, if Jesus were to come right now, a lot of religious leaders would freak out and want to just put him away. He would not, they would not respond to Jesus' friend request. They would block him. <laughs> right? <clears throat> they wouldn't be sharing his stuff. Yeah, everybody loves the healing Jesus. Everybody loves the Lord who feeds 5,000 people at once. Everybody loves the Lord who touches lepers, the untouchable, the unclean, the one who hangs out with politicians and prostitutes, the one who hangs out with drunks, the one who embraces those on the outside. But the thing is, that's scary. We love it, and we're also like, we need to keep that a little bit at arm's length. That's a little bit much. Jesus is a king and not a celebrity. He doesn't want that poster up behind your door like some preteen girl who has like a band poster behind the door. I remember Dylan, what was the band? Was it you? What's that? You get in trouble for having like, okay, with somebody else. But um, <laughs> I definitely had some weird. I had some weird. I remember. What did I, I've had like, I had Rob Zombie. Everybody remember Rob Zombie? I had, I had Marilyn Manson. It was the kind of glue in the dark, and it had like a little felt. You know what I'm saying? It was weird. I. It was weird. I'm not gonna lie. But you, you, you didn't put those, you didn't put those posters necessarily like, you put them like on the door, you know what I mean? So that, you know, other people don't see it right away. You know what I mean? They got to get to know you a little bit first. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and uh, our following Jesus shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be like other people got to get to know us a little first before they know that, you know, oh, so you do go to church. Like we're embarrassed of Jesus. He's like, we put him up behind the door, maybe. <laughs> he doesn't want that. You know, he wants to actually not be that poster, but he wants to be having a place in your life, in your heart, guiding your actions, shaping how you see yourself, the world around you, so that you become more and more like him. Not like him in his power, right? Not like him in being the son of God, but like him in his character, doing the things he did, loving people like he loved people, embracing people no matter what, who they were or where they came from. The opposition to Jesus is real, and it's rising, and everybody seems to know it, but for some reason, somehow his followers seem to be in the dark. It's so interesting. Jesus repeatedly keeps telling them, I am going to die. <laughs> I am going to Jerusalem. And they're like, at one point, Jesus' main guy, right, Peter? He's like, yeah, you're not doing that. You're not going to the cross. Like, like I will lay down my life. Like, that's not happening. <laughs> And what does Jesus say? 
Like, get behind me, Satan, right? Jesus just straight out calls him out because what Peter didn't understand is that Jesus had to die. Jesus had to lay down his life for us. And for some reason, we can be like this. I know what it's like to be in the dark because I'm too close to a situation. As many of you know, our daughter was very sick in Africa and spent months in the hospital to the point where she could not sit up. She could not keep her eyes straight. She was practically, for all sense of purposes, paralyzed. And we didn't know what was wrong with her. And she was four years old. And we were in the dark. And we couldn't see clearly. We couldn't see what was right in front of us. We couldn't see that we needed to get out of Rwanda and take care of our daughter. And so what happened is our, our team, the people we were working with, they side tackled us in love. And sometimes that's what we got to do. Some of you probably felt like that when I anointed you with oil and you said, no. <laughs> Sometimes we got to side tackle people with love, right? So anybody that's ever been um, going through something, whether it be depression, whether it be they were, you know, struggling with some kind of addiction, whether it be they just wanted something in life and it never came, they knew that at some point in their life, someone from the outside came and smacked them with love. And that's what they needed. They weren't, they weren't going to go willingly. They weren't going to be like, oh, I come to my senses. No, they needed someone to come alongside them. That's what happened to us. They saw our situation. I'm sitting there calling the insurance. We're talking to... Uh, the medical ambulance that take her to another part of Africa. And they're like, no, no. Listen, one of our teammates put our entire family on their credit card, which is amazing. And they paid for another young woman to go with us just so that we would have someone to help us with our kids traveling back to Philadelphia. Christy was so drained from taking care of Sophie in a hospital where the power was out more than it was on. And, um, you know, she would go for 12 hours at a time asking for a cup of water and no one would bring it. And she was just, and, you, and she was robbed and that kind of stuff in the hospital ward. So she was so stressed and drained, she actually needed an IV drop herself just a few hours before we flew out because she just had drained herself so much for Sophie. We needed other people to see our miserable situation and just tell us what to do. <laughs> and I think all of us have been there at some point. All, all of us are like, we get to the point where we're so stuck on our stupidity and we're so stuck in like the place we're in that a gentle nudge is not gonna work. We need a shake. We need a clap. We need someone to side tackle us with love. And that's what Jesus does. You know, we, we saw 
we saw last week, a few weeks ago, we had Carla. Remember Carla? She came and shared. It was awesome. And she talked about growing up, and she talked about how the like church people came alongside their family, and they'd bring the bus around the old Highland Park apartments, and they'd pick up all the kids, and the, you know, every once in a while, they would have services where kids would take over the church, and they would reach out, and everybody would come. And she said that would that change the direction of her life. And everybody was moved by that. And I remember my wife telling me, yeah, everybody wants to go feed the kids Saturday. And then my wife was just reminding everybody, listen, that is awesome. But you need to come and pray and share your life because you need to be poured into as well. Like you cannot pour yourself out for everybody. And nobody is pouring themselves into you. You need to, you know when you're flying and I don't know if you've ever flown, but what they tell you every single time is that when you're traveling with your kids and if the air leaves the plane, which is like terrifying, it's like, Welcome to flying. Here are like five scenarios which you will probably die in. But like, you know what I mean? We'll, we'll, we're coming along with Sprite and Peanuts though, so it makes up for it. But yeah, every single time they remind you of all the terrible things that could happen. And one of them is like the cabin depressurizes when you're in the sky. And then they have these bags that come down and you put them on your head. You put them over your mouth. And they always tell you, parents, put it on yourself first, then put it on your kids. Because every parent's instinct, right, is to see their kid struggling to breathe and to try to work it onto their kid. But have you ever tried to put something on your kid when they're completely healthy and there's no cabin depressurization? Have you tried to dress your kid like when they're like completely doing their best? It's a, it's a struggle. Now you're trying to do it and you're not thinking and you're losing oxygen and they're moving around. And now both of you are knocked out because you lost oxygen. We need to breathe. We, we need spiritual breath. Listen to me. And we will, this will tie into the story, Reb. Trust me, but listen to me. You cannot lead other people to a place you've never been. Amen. So if your life is only raggedy and busted and messed up, how are you going to help somebody? How are you going to help somebody else get out of that? But it works both ways. It works both ways. I want you to know tonight that, that wherever you've been, God came into this sad and broken world, and he came down to the depths of this world and to the depths of hell to lead you out. Now, we have friends who, who know our struggle, who have been in the exact same spot as us, but they don't know how to get out. And so they're not going to be able to help you. You might be able to feel safe with them. You might be able to feel like I can be myself and I can relax. And at least I know I'm not alone. And that counts for something. Please hear me. That counts for something. But they can't help you get out. 
And we may also know some people who seem like they're not struggling at all. And they really can't identify with where we're at. And maybe their lives aren't raggedy, but they can't help lead us out because they've never been in our situation. You hear me? But Jesus knows both where out is. He knows where the exit door is. And he knows what it's like to be in the basement. He can lead you out. He can lead you out. He came to this world to die for you. This is why this story is so important. Judas is this leading voice, leading this concern, so-called concern, and he asks, why in the world are you letting this woman waste all this money? So she he takes like this like glass-like container of perfume, breaks it. This isn't a um, $300 bottle of perfume. This is like a regular laborer's year salary of perfume. Okay? And we still have, I, we still have perfumes like that. Go, go look, Google it. We have perfumes that are in the tens and hundreds of thousands of dollars that you can buy. Well, you can't buy it. Well, I don't know. Maybe you can. <laughs> I want to talk to you if you can buy that perfume after church. I have some vision. I have some dreams for stuff we can do right here in Gloucester City. And I would love to talk to you if you can buy $100,000 bottles of perfume. Because I think we have <laughs> some good stuff you could do with that money. And so we all relate to Judas, right? In a sense, because he's saying, like, why would you let this woman break this expensive bottle of perfume and use all of it on you. Today we anointed folks with oil and we prayed for them. It's something that the church has done from the beginning. It's, some, it's right from the New Testament. It's right from the scriptures. And it goes way beyond Jesus. It goes way back to the days when all of God's people basically came out of these tribes which wandered around the wilderness and they were all shepherds. They all took care of sheep. And one of the things you have to do with sheep is back in the day, they would get these terrible infestations. You're like, oh, this is going to be a beautiful pastoral picture of why we anoint. It's going to be so nice and it's going to be like a precious moments doll, right? But it's not. It's kind of gross. They would put the oil on the sheep. You know why? Because if they didn't, the mites and everything would suck the blood out of the sheep and they would get diseased from it and they would die. So the pastors had to put oil on their sheep And even now, you put something shiny and oily and thick on your kid's head if they get lice, right? Not that anybody's ever experienced that here. <laughs> this is a classy group. But, <laughs> but listen to me. You put, you put the oil on the sheep, and it signifies that this is a sheep that's taken care of. This is a sheep that's owned. 
This is a sheep that's protected. This is a sheep that's loved. And it became a symbolic symbol over time where the kings would be anointed, where the priests would be anointed, where people would be anointed. And then we see in the New Testament, the elders, the, the shepherds, the, the, the idea of all the words in the New Testament are either elder or shepherd for the leaders of the church. And they, they, they might be bishop or whatever, but it all means the same thing. And they take care of the flock. And it's not a sign of being owned by a pastor. It's a symbol that, you know, like Miss Irish. The oil means that you're God's. That you are God's. We need that. Now, why was Jesus needed to be anointed? Jesus needs to be anointed right before he dies. His enemies knew he was going to die. They were plotting it. Even one of the people among them knew he was going to die because Judas was plotting how he would betray Jesus, right? His disciples were sort of in the dark, <laughs> Because like I told you, I know what it's like to be in the dark. They were just like, Jesus is just going to live and lead us forever. It's so cool to be with Jesus. He heals people. It's great. My life sucked before Jesus came in. And now I'm just going to follow Jesus around. Even though he's telling us I'm going to die. Yeah, but you're not really going to die. <laughs> and this woman knew. And I just want to put to bed... One of these things. Some people use the words of Jesus out of context. Where Jesus says, you know, the poor will always be with you. Some people use this as a way to say, listen, it's not my job or the church's job to care about the poor really in any meaningful way. Because Jesus said the poor will always be with us. But Jesus is actually quoting the Old Testament here. And I want to read that for you. Um, it's some Deuteronomy. I'll just read it for your hearing. If there is a poor person among you, one of your brothers within any of your city gates in the land the Lord has given you, do not harden your hearts or... Be tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Instead, you are to open your hand to him and freely loan to him enough for whatever need he has. Because that there isn't the wicked thought. So that there isn't a wicked thought in your heart. And this would be the thought. The seventh year of the canceling debts is near. And you are stingy towards your brother and give him nothing. God's people had this rule where, wouldn't this be awesome if we had this rule? Every seven years, whatever debts you had, they would be cleared. Like, like everybody looks at the Bible and they say, you know, the Bible's old-fashioned and repressive and, you know, and, and, and it's, it's hilarious because I'll tell you what, I will be paying my student debt 
for a lot more than seven years. And maybe my kids will be paying it. Just terrible. Not an example, by the way, of how to live. But do you hear what I'm saying? They would have this freedom. They'd have this liberation. But, but God's word is warning you, warning his people back then, look, just because you know the year is coming when the debt's going to be canceled, don't be like, well, I can't loan you because you're just not going to pay me back in a year. God's word says, give it to them anyway. Open your hand. He will cry out to the Lord against you. And you will be guilty. Give to him and don't have a stingy heart when you give. Because the Lord, your God, will bless you in your work and in everything you do. For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. This is why I am commanding you. Open your hand willingly to your poor and a needy brother in your land. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. Jesus saying the poor you always have wasn't like, so just you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> no, he's quoting a passage of scripture that repeatedly three times says, open your hand to the one in need because they're always going to be there. And it's not necessarily a prophecy or prediction, but it's a comparison. It's a comparison. It's not about, oh, you know, you'll always have poor. It's about, listen. You won't always have me. I'll share it with you one last story. We lived for 10 years in West Kensington. And uh, it was, it's like the hungriest zip code in Pennsylvania. It's got the purest heroin in the Northeast. It's a rough spot. And my family's from there. We had homes there. Um, we had history there. And I, I ran into this group of people that were on this cutting edge kind of thing they call the new monastics. And they lived in communes in this poor community. And they did all kinds of cool stuff with kids. And they did all kinds of cool stuff in the neighborhood. And they were all about justice. They were all about helping people. They were all about those things like feeding the hungry, visiting the lonely, comforting the hurting. And of course, this is what the gospel looks like. But here was the problem. They had that mentality of, as long as we're doing these things, we don't need to Preach the gospel. Did you ever hear the saying, you know, preach the gospel always, when necessary, use words? First of all, Francis of Assisi never said that. <laughs> he, ne he never did. Uh, you know, you can research it. He never said it, but it's always quoted to him. You know why? Because he was a beast. But he was also somebody who preached the gospel everywhere. <laughs> So it would have been odd for him to say that because he went around literally preaching the gospel all over. And what I'm trying to say to you tonight is that you need devotion. You need devotion to God or your love for other people will shrivel up and you will burn out 
And I've seen it over and over and over again. I've seen people who have this idea in their head, like Judas, listen, let's just use everything to help other people. And God becomes less and less and less of a priority. And what I'm trying to say is, we live in this world where you hear every single week someone posting something about how thoughts and prayers are trash, they don't mean anything, let's do something. And God wants you to know that Work and prayer are to go together. You're not supposed to just pray about it and do nothing. But you're also not supposed to just do a bunch of stuff and not pray about it. If you only do stuff and you never pray about it, and there's no love of God as a foundation for what you're doing, what you're doing won't last. And I mean it won't last forever. It won't last in eternity. But I also mean it won't last even decades here. You will shrivel up. You will burn out. And you will struggle. If you want to see who's on the front lines of the chaos in this world, if you want to see who's in the mountains in South Sudan, if you want to see who's in the conflict zones, it is people who are doing it because they have this window into heaven. It's hard to risk your life for something for a bunch of people that are just ungrateful and don't ever seem to change. But if you know that what if when you know that your acts of love matter forever, you can be on that train for the rest of your life. When you know that that PB and J for a hungry Gloucester kid isn't just one less meal, one less meal for the parents to give, one little bit more of an opportunity for the parents to be more wasteful. Like, that's how our cynical minds can go, right? Take care of kids, and you can create a habit of parents feeling like, well, I don't got to take care of my kids. They'll eat somehow. If you never thought that, sorry, put that thought in your head. <laughs> but that's reality. <laughs> what I'm saying is, when you see spreading that PB and J, as an act of worship. Jesus said, when you give a cup of cold water to a kid, it will never be forgotten. It will never be forgotten. Jesus is reminding his followers what this woman did, her extravagant love for me, was right. And when we love people around us, we ought to do it in an act of worship because it will last in this life, and it will outlast this life. It will matter forever. I got more to say, but I, I, I really, I, I, want to, um, I want to pray for us that God would give us this heart like this woman who anointed Jesus the last week of his life. God, I pray that we would have a heart that treats you like Bethany and not like Jerusalem. We wouldn't offer you fake worship, but true and sincere worship. Lord, I pray that we would be led by you. We would be not just fans of you and have our Jesus poster in our room, but Lord, we would be followers of you. We'd be your subjects. We would want you to come into our life and change it. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.